just ask God to bless our time in his word. Lord, we confess that we often don't love well. But often, Lord, we praise the work of your Son that was full of love. And we seek to love each other, Father, as Jesus has loved us. And yet, Father, we battle this flesh. We often lose the fight. And sometimes, Father, we just don't know how to love people well. Lord, I pray that you'd help us today to see what the local church should look like in terms of how it loves each other. And that, Lord, you would use this to shape us into the kind of congregation that not only is a place of true affection among believers, but is so full of godly love that it shines before the community around us. Oh, Lord, protect us from things, Father, that would divide us and would disrupt our love. And instead, Father, help us to approach each other with grace and truth and genuine brotherly affection. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Much of the Christian life boils down to how we treat other people, especially other Christians. If we are Christians, then we have been redeemed through the work of God's Son, and we humbly recognize His loving sacrifice for us. And as a result, we now seek to treat others with an affection like our Lord Jesus through the new hearts that God has given to us and through the empowering work of the Holy Spirit within us. But that does not mean that it's easy. As if our battle against this sinful flesh is over. Nor does it mean that we know how to love rightly overnight. The moment after we believe in Jesus Christ. Instead, we need good instruction in how to live with one another as followers of our Savior King. And this is the kind of instruction that we're going to receive today and over the next couple of weeks as we continue in this book. The theme of this letter from Paul to Timothy is godliness in the house of God. Or godliness among God's people, the church. And beginning here in chapter 5, Paul instructs Timothy and his local church in the city of Ephesus to live godly towards one another by carrying out certain responsibilities towards one another. Now, in some ways, this chapter is simply a continuation of chapter 4, where Paul gave young Pastor Timothy multiple exhortations to pastor well by devoting himself to certain good things. But this chapter also broadens in a way that provides direct teaching to each member of the church outlining their various responsibilities towards one another. In verses 1 through 2 of chapter 5, Paul teaches Timothy and the rest of us by extension, as we'll see, about how to approach confrontation with other believers in a wise way. In verses 3 through 16 of this chapter, instruction is given for the care of widows among the church. 
In verses 17 through 25, we are encouraged to treat our pastors well, to be careful about how we rebuke them, and to be slow in ordaining them to gospel ministry. And then in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the apostle teaches about how to honor God when we have other believers in direct authority over our very livelihood. Today, we're going to consider the first two local church responsibilities in verses 1 through 16. And we're going to see that healthy church life should include careful confrontation as well as the honoring of true widows. Important responsibility number one from our text in verses 1 and 2 is that a healthy church life should include careful confrontation. Look with me again at those two verses. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. If you remember, Paul has been challenging Timothy to use his office to build up his church with the word of God. In chapter 4, verse 6, he said, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. In chapter 4, verse 13, he said, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So this is the life of a pastor. To build up God's people with God's word until they all arrive safely home. But pastors are also fighting sin in their own hearts, just like everybody else. And since they are but men, they are also imperfect communicators. And this puts pastors in great danger of overspeaking, of perhaps saying true and necessary things but with either a wrong attitude or a careless choice of words that comes off as unnecessarily harsh. As we all know, it is very possible to say true and necessary things, but to say them in a terribly wrong way. And for pastors who have the responsibility of speaking a lot of words to a lot of people, a special temptation is there to become overbearing and rude. In fact, some pastors have even abused their great privilege by verbally abusing their people, which is utterly sinful and is a dereliction of their duty as mere shepherds underneath King Jesus, the ultimate good shepherd. And this is why Paul instructs Timothy the way he does in verses 1 and 2. Because he wants him to be mindful of his own heart and careful over his words whenever he has to say true and necessary things to various people in his congregation. However, this instruction is also meant to be generally practiced by the whole church body. As we have seen, though this letter was written directly to Timothy, it was meant to be read and considered by the entire church. And as Pastor Timothy was to be an example in all the areas prescribed in this letter, the church body was to then mimic his godliness. So when Timothy was instructed in how to approach hard confrontational conversations, 
the whole church was to follow his example. Every church member, therefore, is to be mindful in their hearts and careful over their words whenever they have to say true and necessary things to other people in the church. We do have to say hard things to each other sometimes because we are to help each other stay clear of sin and stay on the narrow path of Christ. The author of Hebrews said that. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That is a command given to the church to exhort one another so that none of us is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So it's not just Timothy who has this charge here. However, how we go about saying such things is very, very important. You see, they don't make pills with jagged edges for a reason. They make pills round and smooth and hopefully not too big so that they can be swallowed and they don't hurt unnecessarily as they go down and perform their healing function. If they were jagged, it would unnecessarily hurt the person in ways that's unintended. Well, in the same way, how we speak to each other is vital. We're going to give the same amount of true and necessary content, but we can put it, we can shape it in such a way that it goes out of love and out of an encouraging spirit rather than one that is striking and rude. Now, Paul is not contradicting himself in verse 1 when he instructs Timothy to not rebuke certain people. In this verse, he tells him not to rebuke an older man. And then carrying this command to other individuals in these first two verses, he's also not to rebuke younger men, older women, or younger women. So he's not to rebuke anybody according to these verses. However, look at verses 19 and 20 of this chapter, where Paul speaks about how to address an elder when he's found guilty of an egregious public sin. In verse 19, Paul says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And then listen to Paul's instruction elsewhere in two other spots in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, he says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He says to Titus in chapter 1, verse 13 of that letter, The testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So, is Paul contradicting himself? The answer is no. Because in chapter 5, verse 1, when Paul uses this word rebuke, he's using a different Greek word than in other places. In fact, it's a word that is found nowhere else in the entirety of the Bible. The word he uses here for rebuke in chapter 5, verse 1, is translated as rebuke in the ESV, but it carries the sense of striking at someone. 
It is an offensive word that carries the idea of striking or hitting someone verbally. It doesn't merely mean to challenge or correct or exhort or even to admonish. It means to go on the attack. It's an action that stems from things like pride and self-righteousness and inner bitterness or a desire to win an argument. When a pastor, elder, overseer corrects anyone, it is never to be from a heart that's on the attack. Instead, it must always be from a heart that is eager to represent Jesus well by standing strong for truth in a spirit of actual love for his people. Instead of this, Paul directs Timothy here to exhort each type of person in the church with certain forms of familial respect and affection. First of all, he tells him to encourage them. This word, unlike the one who goes on the attack for selfish reasons, refers to a strong urging upon others to walk in a way that honors Christ. It means to appeal to someone with truth and love, to exhort them with careful but necessary words of correction. It does not mean to pick a fight because you want to pick a fight, but rather it means to challenge someone graciously and carefully because it's the right and necessary thing to do. In other words, it's something that you know you have to do and you're willing to do, but it's not necessarily something you're going to delight in doing. In fact, as was pointed out this morning, if you delight in doing this, you probably should not do it because you're probably approaching it from an attitude that wants to strike out at someone. Paul says in Titus 2 verse 6, Likewise, urge, that's the same word here as we have in courage, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Same word. And it means to urge them strongly to live lives of self-control before God. So my friends, please understand, pastors, elders, overseers are never to go on selfish attack. But they are to challenge each member of the church to live lives of godliness, and that will sometimes require delicate but important conversations. And they are always to do this out of a spirit of love. And the way that pastors, and all of us for that matter, are aided in this effort is by thinking of each church member as if they were family. Because they are spiritual family. This is why we covenant together. We commit to each other as spiritual kin. Timothy was not to rebuke an older man, but instead he was to encourage him as he would a father, it says. There would certainly be times when young Timothy would need to confront and challenge older men in his congregation. But Timothy... And all the more so because he was a young pastor, was to think of each of them as a father for whom he would take great care to respect and honor and value and love. The same is true when speaking hard things to older women, verse 2 says. He is to treat them like mothers. Now I, I'm guessing that most of you are like me 
and you had a certain special way of talking to your mom that carried respect and appreciation and affection. Willing to say some hard things as you get a little older in years, but always wanting to do so in a spirit that honors her. I hope that was the case with your relationship with your mom, or is the case with your relationship with your mom. Well, like with the older men, if you have this respectful mindset towards older gals, then all such conversations are more likely, at least, to be dealt with in an honorable way. If you treat her like your mom, you're going to be more careful in the words that you choose and the spirit in which you say them. Paul also challenges him to regard younger men as brothers and younger women as sisters when he spoke to them and was required to confront them on some important matter. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as I've already said, are spiritual kin, and we are to regard each other with bonds of brotherly and sisterly affection. We are not to look down upon them or treat them as if they were less important or don't have something to contribute, but we are to attempt to guide them towards godly growth as we would a brother or a sister. And this last clause in verse 2, in all purity, likely connects into that word sisters here. As As Timothy was to take an even greater care with them, Because there would be the temptation towards sexual sin. Oh, how many pastors have been in positions of profound influence, and when they spoke strong words to their sisters in Christ, they then used that influence in impure ways. Such actions have destroyed reputations. It has destroyed ministries. It has destroyed marriages and families and churches. Therefore, when Timothy confronted another gal of marrying age, he was to take great care to approach her in all purity. To be oh so very careful that he didn't use that position of authority to influence in an impure way and to direct someone in a way that wasn't pleasing to the Lord. Which is why I think the council is wise and I've attempted to adopt it in my life that whenever I formally counsel a gal, There is my wife or another godly gal there present as well. Not that I don't trust, but I want there to be the appreciation that there's a value of purity in that relationship. It guards me, it guards them, it guards any type of untoward thinking that could come about. And I think that's good for all those in leadership to think along those lines. And for all men especially to think along those lines with their sisters in Christ and the local church. As you might have supposed, this is pretty important instruction for us. As the health of a church is tightly connected to how its people speak to one another. For local church elders, this means that we must be careful in how we exercise the pastoral office. Which often requires delivering some strong words of admonishment. We are to urge, we are to challenge, we are to exhort and make strong appeals, but we are never to strike out or to lash at another person, regardless of how they might be responding in the moment. And that's where the temptation usually comes. The older man, the older woman, the younger brother, the younger sister, they're confronted, they lash out, and then the temptation comes to strike back. That's not for him to do. And for all of us, 
This means that while we must be willing to have hard conversations with each other, we must do so as spiritual family. Recognizing that we are addressing a brother or a sister in Jesus Christ and treating them as such. That's our first responsibility. Here is our second. Healthy church life should include the honoring of true widows. Healthy church life should include the honoring of true widows. Look with me at verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. In the first century, the first century church, widow care was of such a unique pressing need that we actually have a pretty hard time fully grasping it today. In the years of Paul and Timothy, many things were different from their society and ours. Able-bodied men were generally expected to be employed and to provide for all the needs of their families, while the women were generally expected to marry and have children and stay in the homes, caring for the homes. But when a husband died, there weren't many opportunities for women to fend for themselves by finding employment that would meet their needs. There just weren't jobs for them. Also in that day, there was no safety net in place if a woman who fell on hard times or became too old to care for herself was in the community. There was no Social Security. There was no Medicare. There was nothing like our 401ks or retirement pensions. So as you might imagine, when a husband died, leaving a wife who was herself advancing in age, she could be left in a pretty precarious predicament. How would she be provided for? Now, it was generally expected in the first century, even among the pagans, that families would care for their aging family members. But what if she had no family to care for her? Or even worse, what if her family failed to provide the care that she needed? In some ways, we can relate to this, but in other ways, we can't. Today, we have a social safety net, though an argument can certainly be made that it's faulty. And today, it is much more expected that women will work outside the home. But this doesn't change the fact that God has ordained a special care for women in his word, whom the apostle Peter referred to as the weaker vessel, not weaker in mind, weaker in body. Whenever those gals are in need, they are to have a special care. Men care for women. And even today, when a Christian widow, a gal who has lost her husband, is in need, the church has a special responsibility to help her. What we discover throughout the Bible is that whenever God's people had those who could not care for themselves, like widows or orphans or the infirm, God's people were commanded again and again and again to care for them. Exodus 22 verse 22 says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child if you do mistreat them, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. I get the sense from that that God's not happy if they're neglected. Deuteronomy 24, verse 19 says, In the law, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. 
It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So as you're taking up the crops, and you leave some behind, don't go back and get it. That's for those who need to come back in and get food for themselves. And then, of course, James Chapter 1, verse 21 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Boil what Christian living looks down to, at least in part, it involves caring for those who can't care for themselves. It seems that God wants his people to take special care of those who are in need including those women of God in their needy later years who have admirably served the Lord and served his people. Which is why in verse 3, the church is challenged to honor widows who are true widows. To honor them does not mean merely to hold them up in high regard, but as the context makes clear, it also means to honor them with the provision of financial support. These gals where it seems added to a list of widows in the church who then received help with food and housing and, of course, many other needs that they would have had. And by referring to them here as true widows, Paul is not diminishing others, but is attempting to distinguish between those who should be accepted to the direct care of the church and those who should not be. Because, as we know, the church simply cannot provide for everybody. Therefore, Paul instructed Timothy to enroll certain widows to a list of true widows according to four wise criterion. And I want to list these off for us. Number one, a widow was to be enrolled if she was without the aid of godly children or grandchildren. Let's see that in the text. Look at verses 3 and 4. Honor widows who are truly widows, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Look at verses 7 and 8. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And then look at verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. The word grandchildren in verse 4 may simply imply descendants, connecting the responsibility here to other family members as well, like maybe a niece or a nephew. But it's clear that if a woman is left widowed, her children and her grandchildren are responsible to care for her. And this is actually something even the pagans would do in that day. So to not take responsibility for one's aging parents was dishonorable even to the world. Their children were to show godliness towards them as if they were making some return, it says meaning that they were to care for their parents just as their parents once cared for them. And when this occurs, it is pleasing to God. He is honored by it, and it brings him glory. So my friends, 
Some of you, this hits close to home. Let me encourage you to take heart if you are caring well for your family today because God is pleased by your service to them. Now, according to verse 7, Paul doesn't want children or grandchildren to be under reproach, it says, which is to be full of blame before God. Instead, he wants them to honor this command to care for their parents. But if they refuse, he has some very strong words in verse 8. He says, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. My friends, for a professing Christian to be so derelict in this clear duty of love, it's as if that Christian has denied the faith and is now in a place that is even worse off than an unbeliever. Because he has learned the way of salvation in Christ, but he has shown through his lovelessness and unwillingness to embrace it in any kind of a transforming way. Caring for your aging parents will not save you. But if you are saved through Christ, having your faith placed in Him, the Spirit of God will direct you in such a way that you will seek to care for your aging parents. And if Christians have been responsible in this way and you are convicted over it, I would say repent of it. And if you're considering how to care for your parents, I would say take careful note of this passage because you do have a responsibility as a Christian to them. So, since a church can only directly care for a limited amount of people, only widows without the help of responsible children and grandchildren were to be enrolled for care. Secondly, a widow was to be enrolled if she lived with her hope on God. Look at verses 5 and 6. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. The verb here for set her hope in verse 5 is in the perfect tense in the Greek which makes it a past action with continuing results. What that means is that a true widow was to be a woman who previously set her hope on God when she first embraced the Lord Jesus in faith and then continued in her hope in God all through her days. So she at one point put her hope in Christ and she's continued that hope through her life. And this hope is demonstrated, it says, by the fact that she was a devout woman of prayer. Contrary to this, she was not to be a woman who was self-indulgent, meaning either that she lived in luxurious selfishness or that she used sinful means to make a living for herself. If she did this, then even though she was living, Paul says, she showed her spiritual deadness. If she, in her widow place, decide to live luxuriously, self-indulgently, or she sought to use her body in a way that would bring about her needs, if you hear what I'm getting at, then she was someone who, though she was living, she was spiritually dead. So the church was only to honor 
with financial care those widows who were faithful women of prayer in the church who set their hope on God and his promises. Third, a widow was to be enrolled if she had a, had a reputation for godliness. If she had a reputation for godliness. Look at verses 9 and 10. Let a woman be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So several things are mentioned here. First, she was to be at least 60 years old. Now I'm going to speak more on the rationale for that in just a moment. But second, she was to be a wife of one husband. Similar to how elders and deacons were described back in chapter 3, she was to be a one-husband woman. Elders are to be one-women men. These gals are to be one-husband women. Meaning that she was to have a reputation through her life of marital fidelity. And third, she was to have a reputation for good works, as First 10 gives examples. Assuming that she had had children, she was to have done so as a godly mother would do. And to the people of her church, she was to have shown hospitality to them by selflessly giving herself to their needs, by sacrificing her goods and her home for the sake of others, and by welcoming all types of people. She was also to have washed the feet of the saints and to have cared for the afflicted. So, like Jesus, John chapter 13, who washed the feet of his disciples, like Jesus, she was to humbly care and care and serve others, especially when people were in great need. So ultimately, she was to be a woman devoted to every good work for the service of God and for the service of other people. So the church was only to enroll a widow if she had a reputation for godliness. And that brings us to our fourth. A widow was to be enrolled if she wasn't too young. Look at verse 11. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. And so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now these verses have led some to surmise that this list of widows in Timothy's day may have involved some form of formal church role. Wherein certain godly widows were added to this care list and were then expected to spend the rest of their days serving the church in various ways that would build up the body of Jesus Christ. And this is supported, I think, by the fact that all of verses 3 through 16 feels something like a list of qualifications. 
much like we would find back in chapter 3 with elders and deacons, wherein these qualified women would not only be cared for, but they would then be put to local church service. And likely, these women would have made a commitment to remain as widows before the church and to serve the church in this special way. And if that was the case, then I think it helps us make better sense of these six verses. Two reasons are given here for why younger widows were to be enrolled and therefore added to this group of true widows who were to formally serve. In verses 11 and 12, He says their passions, which likely refers to their sexual passions or their desire for marriage, their passions might draw them away from Christ when they desire to marry, bringing condemnation upon them for having abandoned their former faith. Now Paul is not denouncing marriage here. He's not going back on what he's already taught, that marriage is a precious thing, in this very letter. Rather, this expression, having abandoned their former faith, could be translated as something like having abandoned or denounced their former commitment or pledge. The word faith has some different usages in the New Testament. And if that's the case, what this would then mean is that these younger widows, when enticed to remarry, they would be tempted to abandon the pledge, the commitment of faith that they made to a group in the church to serve the church as part of an enrolled list of widows. They'd be making a commitment to be part of a group where they'd be cared for and they'd serve in certain ways and then they'd be going back on that commitment. I think that's what this is getting at. And then secondly, verse 13, being younger and with less proven maturity If they were free from the cares of financial provision, then they might be tempted to use their freedom in some seriously unhelpful ways. You have heard that idle hands are the devil's workshop. Not in scripture, but I think it's true. Well, Paul is saying that idle young widows will be left open to the temptations of gossiping about others and of becoming busybodies which is to concern themselves with matters that do not concern them. They're going to gossip about things they shouldn't be talking about, and they're going to put their nose in things that they should not be putting their nose into. So rather than being a help to the church, as they were designated to be, they would be most unhelpful and perhaps even dangerous to the body. Therefore, as Paul teaches in verse 14, these younger widows were to seek to marry and have children and to manage their homes. To do this would give Satan, the adversary, no occasion to slander these gals or to slander God's people, the church. Because as verse 15 notes, some of them had already been led astray. So this is a very prevalent danger in that day. So how do we apply this first century care of widows to the 21st century American church. Well, let me attempt to make the connection in four ways, and then we'll be done. First, I'm convinced that we must be equally committed today to honoring those among us who need special care. That though it might not be exactly as this is laid out, we remain committed to caring for those who need special care. 
In other words, we must not, as a local church, wholly abandon our role to the government. Though perhaps we can be grateful that some provision for them is already in place. And we can work within that structure trying to help them. Secondly, I'm convinced that we must insist that our member families responsibly care for their aging, needy parents, especially if they are female widows. That we train up our people and challenge our people and encourage our people, the people of Riverside, to care for their aging parents when they reach that age. Now, that word, those words caring for can mean probably a lot of different things. But it means that you take the responsibility upon yourself to care for dad and care for mom when dad and mom can't care for themselves. And third, I'm convinced that we should encourage both remarriage and responsible industry for those women who are able. To encourage them to find a spouse or if they're able-bodied to find an industry where they can serve and gain an income. Perhaps they'll need some more help with it, but to help them to use their ability to bring an income for themselves. I think that's wise of us. And then fourth, I'm convinced that we should honor those godly, aging, needy gals, especially among us, with several areas of provision. Now, I don't think we have to have the exact same format that perhaps they had today, if I'm right in my understanding of this passage. But I do think that there are some wonderful things that we can do to help those godly, aging, needy gals, especially in our church. First, as I've already seen people in our congregation do with gals like that in our congregation, we can provide some wise budgeting and financial counsel Sometimes having a wise person step in who can help them understand how to budget carefully and plan well, that can make all the difference for a gal especially in her later years if she doesn't have the provision that she needs. So I think we can do that. I think God has given most churches and even our church individuals with the ability to help people in that way. I think also we can practice intentional visitation to these people to assess and meet their household and health care needs. In other words, we don't just see them on Sundays, but we have the kind of relationship with these women where we are in their homes, praying with them, and seeking to find ways where maybe we help the air conditioner get fixed when it's not working, or we make sure the patch on the roof that's got a problem gets fixed. We take care of some of those simple needs or help them organize their prescriptions that might be a problem for them. We step in and graciously help them. And I would encourage you gals and you men, if you're of that age and need that kind of help, to receive that help because it's a display of Christ's love for you through his people, the church. Don't be prideful. Admit you have a need. And then with all this, I think that we can and should supplement their Social Security and their Medicare and other retirement income if their income truly falls short of basic living standards and fails to meet their basic needs. There's some good tools out there to help them, but I do think that we have to take this word seriously 
that we need to make sure that those true widows in our church are cared for by the church. So we don't have all the answers here about how this pragmatically plays out inside of our local church, but I think we do take away some good principles of how to approach it. So friends, the local church is meant to be the kind of place where people confront each other well with graciousness. And the local church is to be the kind of place where we actually care for those who struggle to care for themselves. This is what God's people are to look like. Because we are the redeemed children of God who have been bought through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, and have now been made spirit-indwelt believers who live our lives in a way that serves God and serves His people. So let us be a church that is formed by the Word like this today. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for the opportunity You have given us today to open up Your glorious Word, the Bible. There are sometimes, Father, where your word, it, it shakes us to the core. Lord, it reminds us of just how desperate we are before you. And at other times, Lord, your word, not that it doesn't humble us, but it, it instructs us, Lord, in some basic, important areas. And we have seen that today. I pray, Lord, that we would be those who would seek to honor your word by loving other people well, by being willing to say hard things in the right way, and by being willing to care for those, Father, who can't care for themselves. I thank you for what you're doing in the people of Riverside. I pray that you would bless the remainder of the service, that you bless the members meeting to follow, and that in our local church, Lord, the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, would be magnified. And we pray this in his name. Amen.